I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. Just before this all happened, I got together with Drew Sawyer at his apartment in bed He's the photo curator at the Brooklyn Museum, and among the numerous exhibitions he's worked on in his current and previous posts at MoMA and the Columbus Museum of Art, he recently gave the Russian Guinean photographer Liz Johnston Artur her first solo museum exhibition, resurrected the color work of Gary Winogrand, and put together an incredible survey of queer work in the past 50 years in Art After Stonewall. Drew earned his PhD in art history and archaeology at Columbia University, where his dissertation was a critical re-examination of Walker Evans. What's interesting with Evans is obviously he comes out of sort of European avant-garde context. He goes to Paris in the 1920s, is engaging in surrealism. And, you know, one of obviously one of the interests of surrealism is the way in which a photograph can function or operate outside of its original context, whether that's Atje's photographs of, of Paris that are sort of rediscovered um, by the surrealists in the late 20s before he passes away uh, and then become these sort of, you know, surreal documents of an old Paris that's quickly fading. Um, and I think Evans learns from that the ways in which his own photographs, even though they are made for other people and they oftentimes adhere to a pre-existing aesthetic in that context, whether it's architectural survey photography or, you know, FSA photography, but that if they're represented with all of his pictures from all these different contexts, um, that it creates new meaning. Um, And I think that's, for me, that's one of the more interesting aspects of Evans's work that I felt, at least in the scholarship, wasn't really unpacked. So is that recontextualization? That was the critique that you were giving or looking at? Yeah, so you, there's, you know, like so many photographers of his generation, it's not until the 60s and 70s that they really get their due from both an institutional uh, perspective, although obviously Evans had support from MoMA in the 1930s, um, but from a much broader perspective, both right, the field of the history of photography um, is initiated if in academic settings, in, 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 in universities, um, but also in art museums beyond MoMA. Um, so, you know, he's not really received, the reception of his work isn't really received in an art historical sense until the 1960s and 70s, at which point he begins teaching at Yale and he has a survey at MoMA in 1971. And it's not until he's teaching at Yale and he gets that survey that he formulates this idea of his practice called documentary style, which he says, right, is the idea that his pictures are in the style of, of documents, right? So it's a very sort of postmodern idea, right? That he's appropriating a style, but not actually, he's appropriating aesthetics in the way that pop artists were uh, appropriating commercial aesthetics and practices, um, but they actually weren't functional in the way that a commercial um, photograph or an editorial photograph is. Um, so I became really interested in this because obviously that's not true, right? His, all of his photographs had a function when he originally made them. They were made for an architectural survey. They were made for a magazine. They were made for a book. They were made for a government agency. 
And so I became interested in how do you reconcile these two positions? And so that's sort of what I tried to do. What was the resolution? One of the things I was interested in is that, again, Evans, there wasn't as much writing by Evans until he was in an academic setting. So I think, one, it's interesting to think about, you know, the rise of MFA programs in the 1960s, the rise of photography programs within that. And obviously, Yale is one of the first ones, and he's teaching at Yale. Um, But, you know, and what are the things that MFA programs in our in since the 1960s have done and one that's the production of discourse right it's the way in which artists are trained to talk about their work in in a different way it's the way artists are trained to engage um, in uh, certain academic discourses because they're within a university environment so they're engaging with people not only in an art program but people in art history people in literary studies and american studies so evans for example you know becomes close with alan trachtenberg who was a professor of of american studies literature at yale and trachtenberg begins writing about evans's work Um, and if you go into evans evans's archive you can see drafts of trachtenberg's essay which became Reading American Photographs, which is one of the more seminal essays on, on Evans's work. But you can see that they were exchanging these ideas and, and Trachtenberg was sharing, sharing drafts with Evans. And to a certain degree, it meant that Evans, the sort of older, elder Evans, who was reformulating his work, especially from the 1930s, because that's really what people focused on even in the 60s and 70s, his, his work from the 30s. Um, but it meant he had a lot of control over the narrative, and he was exchanging these ideas with academics. Over the narrative around American about photographs. Around his work, right? Yeah, around right. his work, um, how he conceived of it in the 1930s, but obviously his, his conception of how he was thinking about photography in the 1930s was also engaging in discourses in the 1960s and 70s. Right, 30 years later. Yeah. Did you know you wanted to be a curator? Was the fellowship at MoMA the kind of foray into that? So actually, right before I started my dissertation, and really what got me interested, more interested, both in curatorial work, but also in histories of photography, was uh, I I ended up doing an exhibition at Columbia. They have an art gallery, the Wallach Art Gallery, Mm -hmm. um, where grad students can submit proposals for exhibitions. And while I was taking a graduate seminar on um, sort of the documentary tradition in the United States, we came across like a footnote that referenced an archive at Columbia in the rare books and manuscript library. While I was in a graduate seminar Mm -hmm. on the documentary tradition in the U.S., I read a footnote in an article about uh, an archive that was at Columbia in the rare books and manuscript library, um, which was, I mean, all the archives, but um, thousands of photographs from the Charity Organization Society and the Association for Improving the Conditions of the Poor, which were two charitable organizations in the 19th century in New York City that essentially started the field of social work. They started the the first school of social work, which became, which merged with Columbia University, which is why Columbia had the archive. But they initiated social work as a discipline came out of at least partially 
what was called scientific charity. So, right, the belief that um, better to use sort of statistics, information gathering as a way to have a more sort of efficient and productive approach to charity, um, right? So very sort of reformist um, idea. And so obviously photography was one way of, of presenting information, um, of translating all the data they were gather, gathering into some sort of uh, visual. So many of them used photographers, had staff photographers that went out um, with you know their various sort of social workers that would gather information from people who were receiving charity or from studies they were doing to better understand, you know what what sort of actions um, were were needed. Uh, so, for example, the charity organization society started a publication called Charity in the Commons, which became Survey and Survey Graphic. And Lewis Hine was the staff photographer for that during the first decade of the 20th century, and then was employed to do the Pittsburgh survey, right? So it's sort of this like canonical project within the history of photography um, came out of this organization. So anyway, so I discovered that there was this archive that um, at that point was not even cataloged. It was not even housed in... Um, archival boxes. It was just like thrown in there. Nobody had really gone through it. So a fellow classmate, Huffa Frobes Cross, and I decided to propose an exhibition. Um, we worked with the library to digitize all the photographs um, and create a website for it as well for the archive um, to rehouse everything. Uh, and then we organized an exhibition around around that and a book. And it was that was really the first foray. Both in like deeply into the history of photography, but also curatorial work. And I think after that, it was just like it just like clicked. I was like, oh, this is what I this you just is wanted what to I do. Want it. To do. You're right. While I was working on that, I I proposed a dissertation topic, and then right after I did that show, the fellowship at MoMA was posted, and I applied. Mm. And it just so happened, you know, I mean, this is it's like all luck, right? It's just yeah. like, you know, I feel. I've been so lucky and fortunate in my career path that things have happened and it's all about timing. When I applied for that fellowship at MoMA, Sarah Meister was getting ready to do an exhibition for the 75th anniversary of American photographs by Walker Evans. So it was, was, you know, when I interviewed, it was was a project she was starting. It was going to happen, I guess, the following year. Pretty good coincidence. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, it's just, it's all luck. Yeah. What about curatorial style? Like, I feel like I'm always interested in observing the work of different curators throughout history, how, like, some of the best ones really had, just like an artist might have, you know, very kind of distinctive voices and styles. Did you kind of see that for the first time working there? Do You know, I think institutions are different because it, uh, the, each institution has its own institutional voice right which means that they tried to why there is an editorial process and why you know any any wall text for example is read by both people in education but also people in other departments and editorial to try to at least have some sort of overarching style or voice but that allows for at least some variation given um, different curatorial styles um it's interesting. I think, you know, for me at least, 
I've always been really drawn to the way that photography intersects with other media. Mm -hmm. So even that show um, called Social Forces Visualize, which was on the um, photography and scientific charity, uh, included lantern slideshows. It included tons of publications that where most of the photographs that were made were made for, right? Whether it was charity in the commons or, or different brochures and pamphlets, um, or, you know, exhibition panels that they created for, um, traveling exhibitions on various subjects. So I've always really been interested in that sort of the way that photography intersects with institutions and, and other forms of presentation other than the, just the print. Mm-hmm. You know, while I wasn't thinking about it probably at that time, it's, you know, I, that's one through line for me that when I look at the shows I've ended up organizing, they usually are not just straight up photography shows. They're rarely just photographs, prints, you know, framed on a, on the wall. Right. Um, there's almost always moving image in some way, whether that's film and video or, um, or a slideshow. Mm-hmm. So for me, yeah, I think I've, that's, that's maybe if I had a style, that would be <laughs> a part of it. That would be a part of it. Yeah. Um, for sure. But I also think it's interesting, you know, and this is why I find curatorial work more fulfilling for me personally is because, you know, it pushes me outside my comfort zone because I'm thinking about, um, right? Not only the institution's history, so what kind of programming, whether that's an acquisition or an exhibition or a public program, um, what makes sense for that institution given its collection, which obviously in any institution I've worked for existed long before I arrived. And then what, what, what fits with a given institution's audience and yeah, so I find I, that's what I find most interesting, I think, about curatorial work. Yeah. Do you have any like big curatorial influences or people whose work that really excites you? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Who do I know? <laughs> Maybe to rephrase the question, is there any curatorial work that you react against or in response to that really bothers you? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say anyone specific on either end of that, probably, but (laughs) I think I tend to respond again. This is clearly my own bias, but I, I, which, you know, it's, it's the same way in which like I was fine within crits within an art context or with, within academic talks where, you know, somebody asks a question that Mm -hmm. it always reveals more about the person asking a question than it does about the subject that they're asking about or the person that they're asking that question of. It's yeah. usually filtered through a, like, why didn't you do something that's more like what I want you to do? <laughs> <laughs> I think um, that's, a pretty, uh, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. <laughs> um, so having said that, I'm going to do that. But I think, yeah, I'm, I, I tend to respond also to exhibitions that are fairly multimedia that mixed mediums in its presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, so especially for photography, I've just, you know, I think for me, I'm, I'm always interested in, in something, as I was saying, beyond just the framed print on the wall. Right. And that is probably more true for historical materials. Of course, like a, a contemporary artist, if they're producing work that only exists in the print format that goes on a wall, I think that's different than somebody like, say, Walker Evans, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, for me, it's because so many historical artifacts from the history of photography, are it, the, 
are usually presented as prints. Prints are the things that are obviously collected mostly by museums and they're things mm-hmm. that are framed and then put on walls. But, you know, I, I think why I, why I love photography is the various ways in which you can encounter it. And I think for a lot of the history of photography in museums, they downplayed all those other contexts. So I'm, yeah, I think any show for me that sort of makes us rethink how we see photographs in an art museum is what I'm most drawn to. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Drew Sawyer that we recorded in Bed-Stuy. Drew's the photo curator at the Brooklyn Museum, and we'll be sharing some of his work on our Instagram. So follow along at Magic Hour Podcast. 
photography and especially in the vein of Winogrand, it all looks so real. I mean, it's the nature of a photograph, you know, it's depicting reality. I mean, especially like the style that he shot in. I think the brilliance in Winogrand's work, so much of it is in the formal activity of how the formal things within mm -hmm. the photo are, are working. And when you see his color work next to it, it just reinforces that so much. Like, you know, he was really working out the color in, in the pictures. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the show, I presented about 450 color slides out of 50,000. So, you know, even I that's a lot. No, it's obviously it was a, it was a lot. But obviously also I was making decisions. Right. Um, I was making the selections. Right. So they might also reveal something about my own tastes because there are many images I could have selected that would have given a very different feel for Winogrand's color work. Mm -hmm. I tried to be as responsible or as sort of methodical as I could in the process. The good thing about the color work is that they were all developed during his lifetime, unlike some of his black and white work. Right. And because they were all developed by a lab and were sent back in cardboard mounts, um, it meant that he oftentimes signed or stamped the cardboard mounts. He wrote notes on them, starred them, so there was at least a way to make an initial selection from the larger 50,000 by just saying, okay, what are the ones that he signed? Mm -hmm. um, what are the ones that he starred? Um, or, you know, he would write a note of like where it was taken somewhere in Texas or California. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even that was probably several thousand out of the 50,000. So then I had to narrow it down from right. that. Can you describe the tone that you were looking for or the kind of um, feel in that edit? Well, as I started doing that, I was also thinking of how I would present it in an exhibition format. So I knew I was presenting it as slideshows. Mm -hmm. um, again, because that was, it felt the truest to both Winogrand's original presentation, also, but how the objects live today. They live as slides in an archive. Right. So to have scanned them and produce a pigment print seemed antithetical right. or seemed like I would be making too many decisions about what would be the size of the print. Um, what would be, you know, if we did any color corrections or up the saturation, you know, those would be all decisions that we would make. Right. Um, but with the slides, you know, we could just scan them. We didn't do color corrections. We really just projected them digitally. And even that, the choice to present them, digitally was also because it became clear that we couldn't make duplicates. We couldn't make analog duplicates. So we couldn't take the original slide, take it to a lab and make an analog directly from the original film. So it meant we had to scan them. And then we did create one set of analog slides in the, that I presented in the introductory gallery, right. which I thought was important because obviously many people in 2019 may not have ever experienced color slides, a slideshow. Um, it also felt a little disingenuous to create film slides out of uh, scans because it's right. It was, I, it mm. was film slide into a scan and then back into a, uh, right. and back into film. And so it felt like I was trying to present something in an analog way that wasn't really analog. It, right. there was, it would always be mediated digitally um, so then I just made the choice, like, you know what, like, let's just present them all as digital projections, um, since that's the only way we could actually 
image them, make duplicates. Right. Um, also, you know, obviously digital projectors are much brighter. The quality's in many ways better than an analog slide. So then I thought, well, I want not just one big slideshow, but many, many, many projectors. I wanted to create this sort of overwhelming sense of images, the amount of photographs that Wintergrand shot, both in color and in black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, you know, just the sheer volume of pictures that he made. Uh, and then I also wanted to sort of create this sense of movement as if you're with Wintergrand walking on the street or driving in a car across the country. Because mm-hmm. that's really how I felt as I was going through the slides. It really, you know, you feel like as you're going through all the contact sheets, as you're going through all these slides, which are obviously, they were organized by him. So they were in individual boxes based on the roles. So you would see him following a single subject. Um, so it really did feel like I was, you know, there with him mm-hmm. as I was looking through all these things. And so I sort of wanted to create that sense also in the installation. Once I sort of realized, okay, I want at least eight, eight projectors going simultaneously, I started thinking like, what are the different kinds of images that I would want up at the same time? So I then sort of started pulling different thematic subjects. Right. The beach. Right. So there there was one that was Coney Island. I felt obviously Coney Island's in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Museum. Right. Um, Why not start with Coney Island? But it's also some from the 1950s. Some of his most well-known pictures in black and white were made at Coney Island, too. Um, So that seemed like a no brainer to me. And he shot a lot. I mean, out of his color work in the 50s, he shot several thousand exposures at Coney Island. And I, I just thought they were some of the most compelling images. So other examples were obviously you know, New, York, New York street scenes in the 1960s, probably his, what he's most well-known for also in black and white. Photographs uh, that he took on the road, like actually literally on the road from his car, mm-hmm. um, and they, mostly in 1964 when he got his first Guggenheim Fellowship. And then other images on his road trip, but you know whether that's a carnival or a sporting event or in a suburb, in a backyard, at a motel. Um, so sort of grouping those. And then other ones were pictures of women in the 1960s. And obviously because he's so well known for the women are beautiful, I felt like I had to at least um, acknowledge his... Uh, interest in photographing women, but uh, I wanted to complement it with pictures of men. Because I think when you go through the archive, what you realize is there's an equal number of pictures of just men. Obviously, men of the fo- many of the photographs and even many of the photographs that are, were in Women Are Beautiful also feature men. So they're not just women. Right. Um, but there's, you know, a lot of images of men, especially in New York City, um, sort of middle-class businessmen in the gray flannel suit. Uh, many of them in sort of walking in packs on the street. Um, and then also a lot of photographs of cowboys. You know, he goes to Texas a lot in the 60s and um, the 50s and 60s and eventually moves there in 73 and teaches at UT Austin. So right. this sort of his interest in the cowboy is sort of um, interesting to me. 
again, just because, you know, I imagine it's, he, he's a first generation Jewish American born and raised in the Bronx. Um, it's certainly a very different, um, uh, idea of, uh, uh, masculinity than, than what he grew up with. Mm. Yeah. You, I mean, you I, using it to his, to his, um, using it for his purposes, I guess. Right. I mean, I think definitely when you go through, um, all of his negatives, contact sheets in black and white, and then the slides, the color slides, you realize that there's not, and this is true of so many photographers, cause it's very true of Walker Evans mm-hmm. as well. Um, that there's there the sort of this idea of authorial style begins to break apart right. once you start looking at things. Obviously, that's true of a lot of photographers because they're shooting way more images than they ever print or right. present. Um, so, Wintergrand's an interesting case because obviously most photographers make their own selection from their negatives and usually make prints, and those or those images then go into an, you know, a very edited book like American photographs. Right. But Winogrand, you know, shot so much, like an insane amount, but was never really interested in the editorial process. Even what we know of as Winogrand is through the eyes of others, most frequently John Tchaikovsky, um, and also somebody like Todd Papa George, um, yeah. and other friends. I mean, a lot of, it was a lot of his closest friends that did the editing. I mean, Friedlander did a portfolio in the 1970s of Winogrand's work. A double elephant one. Yeah. yeah and yeah. those are obviously images that are most well known because they're the most widely circulated. A lot of museums bought those portfolios. Oh yeah. Um, the Friedlander Walker Evans edit is also pretty interesting. Yeah. It's almost like his Walker Evans school. Right, which is sort of what I was saying, you know, getting out with Walker Evans, this idea of the reception of his work mostly came through the 60s and 70s and mostly through Tarkowski right. and the New Documents people like like Friedlander. Yeah. Um, so you were seeing all different types of pictures in, in the Winograns. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I tried to, as much as I could, one, as, as I was saying, because he marked a lot of them, I at least could select those and have yeah. some, not a hundred percent confident that, you know, he would have shown those, but at least, um, knew that he was interested in those images for whatever reason. Right. So I didn't end up presenting that many pictures that he didn't in some ways mark, but there were obviously many, many pictures that don't look like what we think of as a Wintergrand photograph mm-hmm. that are within that archive right and i think that's a great thing for any photographer or artist to hear even is that you know because you always see the finished book which is such a fraction and it's all so much about editing and not necessarily even you know having such clear ideas of what that thing that you're totally after is and just kind of working through things in order to figure that out yeah but and then also you know i mean i think the conversation often people then talk about authorial intent and how do we know what Winogrand would have selected. Right. And I mean, I guess that's sort of what I was getting at too. I think this idea of authorial intent, especially in photography is, is a complicated one because it's more so I think than in other mediums, it is collaborative. I mean, even Walker Evans, American photographs was edited with um, people at MoMA 
You know, right. he wasn't the only one laying out that book. So what does that mean when we say, what is Winogrand's vision or intent when it's really hard to separate the way he even talked about photography from somebody like John Tchaikovsky right. and his ideas about the medium in the 1960s? I remember uh, John Gossage um, um, telling me this thing that... Um, um, he, was telling, he told me this thing about meeting Walker in the early 70s and he asked him uh, about editing. He asked him about... Oh, he, right. He asked him about how much... Uh, how much he got involved with Robert Frank in editing the Americans, and I think that he said something like, "Oh, I I afforded I afforded Robert the same courtesies that Lincoln Kirstein afforded me in with American Photographs." Mm-hmm. Essentially saying that you know how um, integral they were in yeah in the yeah. editing process. We sort of talked a bit about it with the the Winogrand stuff, but I guess I'm just curious, you know, from the proposal of of a show, what actually happens after that? Like, what does that research process look like? Yeah. I mean, it's different for every project. It just really depends. You know, I think one of the things that people probably don't think about, or maybe they just assume that, you know, curators just propose a show on a topic that interests them or a topic that they think is overlooked or is relevant within a specific discourse within art history is sort of contributing to the field. And those things are true, right? Obviously, many exhibitions come about through thinking through those ideas. But also exhibitions come about, especially when you work at a museum, because you have to be thinking, what is actually doable, right? What is an exhibition that I could actually put together? Mm -hmm. Um, And one that would be within a certain budget, right? I mean, you have to think about what what can the museum afford? Obviously, different institutions have different um, capacities for exhibition making and programming based on their own overall budgets. Um, but it's So that's one thing that you're always thinking about. Um, I think photography, photo curators have it a bit easier because obviously photography is in multiples. So yeah. if you're wanting to borrow work, it's not... Usually, I mean, depending if maybe if you're dealing more so with 19th century material, um, but you're not, you know, you're not beholden to one lender. You can ask multiple people or multiple mm-hmm. institutions, um, which makes it a little easier and more affordable to organize exhibitions with photographs. Right. Um, so, right. I mean, unlike if you're doing a Picasso show, you have to you have to convince hundreds of lenders to part with their objects which might be on view and might be very say sort of popular uh, works at their institution and their audiences would miss them or their audiences if they're paying $25 to go to that museum are expecting to see a work right Um, so those are you know that's always like one of the thought processes but behind thinking about exhibition is like what is actually doable right what can I do at this at my institution um, within those sort of sets of limitations you present more historical work like the Winogrand show that we just talked about and then contemporary work as well younger photographers or living artists even yeah how do you um, 
find the balance between those two types of shows? Good question. I mean, personally, I'm definitely more drawn to the historical materials. I love doing research, archival research, and that's obviously not when you're working with a living artist, um, especially uh, a younger artist, you're, that's not part of really what, what you're doing. You're not going into the archive and, mm-hmm. and doing research and sort of rethinking narratives um, in the same way. So I'm definitely drawn to that, but I'm then obviously drawn to artists who are often, I can sort of locate within my own historical interests some sort of genealogy or lineage. So, you know, I think my own interests have tended to be around different sort of experimental documentary practices in the 20th century and 21st century. Um, So whether that is somebody like Walker Evans or Alan Sukula or Lucy Raven. So I think, yeah, I find ways to sort of, or I try to find ways at least (laughs) when I'm looking at more contemporary art to connect it to my own historical interests mm-hmm. or in some cases right the so for the Columbus Museum of Art I did as I mentioned a show with Lucy Raven and also Alan Sukula and that was partially because the museum had the photo leak collection so I was really interested in a specific history of documentary in the U.S. one that was very tied to the worker photography movement at the Brooklyn Museum it's different They, you know, the museum has its own collecting priorities long before I arrived, you know, my predecessors and even in the case there, there wasn't a photo curator for quite some time, but, um, through the contemporary department and through the center for feminist art, we were doing exhibitions on photographers such as Latoya Ruby Frazier had a solo show. Zanelle Moholy had a solo show before I, I got there. Um, so in a way, I think already the, the institution is also very aligned with my own interest in experimental um, documentary practices. I think Latoya's work would fit within that quite easily. Um, and Brooklyn also has a fairly sizable um, collection of uh, work by photographers in the Photo League as well, which tended to be first or second generation Jewish Americans also. Um, And obviously Brooklyn, the neighborhood surrounding the Brooklyn Museum for much of its history at least was partially um, Jewish. So I I guess, yeah, I mean, I I happen to have had the luck of working at institutions that in some way align with my own interests, especially historical. But then, of course, obviously the Brooklyn Museum has long been an institution that's been interested in social justice um, has, has been interested in collecting and presenting the work of artists of the African diaspora. Also, I have a responsibility to both maintain that tradition and respect that tradition and also build on it in my own way. Right. I mean, I think that's a pretty good note to, uh, <laughs> to, to end on. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Drew Sawyer, who's the photo curator at the Brooklyn Museum. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Music in this episode by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. Thanks so much for tuning in and hope you enjoyed that. We'll be back to you real soon with a new episode with the wonderful Mary Manning. Hope everyone is staying well and keeping safe, and um, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.